this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code POETRY at checkout. A better web starts with your website. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 68. We're recording on Thursday, August 28th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill. We're the editors, bookriot.com. Every time you do the read, uh, and uh, the, in our document that we share, it says the standard that we just copy every time. It says, I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. I'm waiting for you to say, I'm Jeff O'Neill. <laughs> One of these times, it's going to happen, right? I, it I, might. I, I'm always on the brink of saying, I'm, on, I'm Rebecca Shinsky. It's going to be like I, that moment in uh, Anchorman where they get him, <laughs> they get Ron Burgundy to read the name that I can't say on the air now. Yeah, don't say that. Don't say that. But we all know what it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, every time I do the read, I glance over it and I'm like, right, I'm not <laughs> Jeff O'Neill. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering, it's like, wait, maybe this text is right. <laughs> I've been doing this wrong the whole time. The day that I do that, though, we'll have to leave it in or the day that yeah, you we definitely do it. Will. We promise we not to edit that out when one of us finally forgets oh. who we are. Or I don't know, does that just mean like we're becoming one person? <laughs> who are you again? Which one am I? <laughs> I'm the short uh, one. Speaking of which one, are, we're going to have guests over the next few weeks. We are. We've got lots of stuff coming up. Um, you're going to be out next week. Yeah, next week I'm out. And so Paul Montgomery, who is the editor of Panels, which is the comics site that we are launching in the fall, Paul is going to sit in with me. I'm going to trade mm -hmm. one charming, witty fellow for another. Oh, now see, now we have to stop the show because I would spend the next um, year blushing. <laughs> uh, and then the week after that, Preeti is going to be with me. You're going to be out. Is that uh, right? It's the, I'm out the like last two weeks of September. Um, so mm. I think we'll have a couple weeks together. And yeah, then right. you'll have Amanda one week and Preeti, who is Paul's co-host on the panels podcast, which is going to be called Oh Comics, will yeah. be in with you. So all our Book Riot folks can get to know Paul and Preeti. And if you're into comics, you want to look for the Oh Comics teaser that's going to be in this channel soon. Right. And then you can get that into your iTunes or Stitcher or however you consume Podcast. It's, it's gonna, O Comics is going to be the, basically the format of this show, mm -hmm. where news and new releases and things of that nature, just with the comics and graphics novel world, um, which we don't talk about at all, really. Sometimes we, if there's a study or a new report or something, we'll, we'll latch on to it. But there's a whole world of uh, comics and graphics novels news out there that's super interesting and has its own ebbs and flows and consistent... Uh, I guess, controversies and standing issues um, that, that are worth talking about. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for that. We'll tell you when it's live. But you also get to meet Paul and Preeti over the next uh, few weeks here as we get into fall. Man, fall's coming up on us. I uh, just I can feel it, Jeff. It's almost chicken roasting season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's the fall and the weather's turning and uh, you're getting in some colder weather, maybe you're thinking about putting together a website. Maybe oh, you think look you've at been, that. Yeah, just don't stop. Come on, just let it, let it breathe. Let it breathe. 
you're thinking about doing a website. And if you are, you should consider Squarespace.com. Squarespace is the easiest way to make a beautiful, responsive, simple to use, fast website, blog, portfolio, lots of kind of things you're going to do online. Two things you want to know about Squarespace. First of all, if you go to squarespace.com and use offer code POETRY, you get a free trial, which is for two weeks. No credit card. You don't have to put in your credit card. and have to remember to cancel it. None of that bogus nonsense. Just a regular free trial. It takes an email address. You'll get to play around with the interface, see how it works. And if you decide to go ahead and subscribe, you'll get 10% off whatever it is you do. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name. So um, you can go get Robert Langdon's hairweave.org if you want, whatever you need. <laughs> Mickey Mouse you Watch. Mickey, Robert Langdon's, Robert Mickey, Langdon's Mouse Mickey Mouse Watch. Watch dot ninja, since those, all those <laughs> new uh, URLs are available. You can get, it's $8 a month and a free domain, for a free domain name for a year. They'll, they'll uh, manage that domain name for you. Here's the thing. they got 20 templates. So you can go in right away. It's, it's meant to be, you could use it just as it is. But it's super easy to change the color, the fonts, the spacing, which widgets you want to do, where you want different links, um, different parts of the web page. My favorite thing, I keep talking about this because it's a super hard thing to do on your own. It's got responsive design, which means your website, you use one of their templates, get it just how you want it to look. And then you don't have to worry about it looking like crap on your iPad or iPhone or Galaxy Tab or on a 27-inch monitor or 11-inch MacBook Air or whatever it is. Their templates are designed to look great on whatever screen um, your readers are looking on. I think if you're going to devote time to something online, it's worth $8 a month to have a great tool to use. Then a nice thing, 24-7 live customer support. You got a problem, you don't know how to do this, you don't know how to do that, you can chat with someone anytime. Because a lot of us, especially if it's a side hustle, you might be you know, doing it 11 o'clock at night on a Friday and you, know, you need to know how to, uh, you know, maybe the, the gifts aren't working for you. You're like singing you my song here, man. What do you mean? Side hustle at 11 o'clock oh, on a Friday. Yeah. It's not like we've done this before. No. We don't know anything about that. We don't poke at the internet in our no, spare not time. At all. <laughs> so you can, you get a problem, something you want to figure out. They have people there available all the time. Uh, they are, uh, they've got a nice group of folks over in Manhattan, just across the bridge from where I live, helping people out with Squarespace sites all the time. If you want to sell something online too, every site comes with an online store built right in. It's included in the price. Super easy to do payment processing and things like that. Go to squarespace.com, enter code poetry, get yourself the tools to make a great looking website. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. Okay. Well, I don't know if this is the end point of digital libraries or not, hmm. but Florida Polytechnic University is trying this new thing. It's a brand new uh, university down there in the great state of Florida. And uh, they have 550 students, brand new school. They're not even accredited yet, but, you know, whatever. That's, you know, all, all new school. You can't come out of the box accredited. That's how it works. But they've got a new digital-only library. And students can browse any book they want using their school software. And they can access it for free once, the deals they made with the publishers. Mm -hmm. If a student access, accesses the book once, they have to pay for it. But the next time someone requests it, they've got to pay for it. The school, right? not the student. The school, I'm sorry. The but school, it's like right? the student purchases it on behalf of the school, uh, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's, it's like the second click Yeah. Um, gets the book into the library. The theory being, if two people use it, well, then maybe we should add that to our collection. They've got $60,000 set aside uh, each year 
or wait, it doesn't say each year. It says sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, maybe total for ebook purchase. I guess there's only five hundred fifty students right now, so that's yeah, that's know, brand new. That's pretty good. Um, leaving the library's catalog in the student body's hands, so they've essentially got a catalog with no collection behind it, so you can browse it. Mm-hmm. But only as things get access do they actually spend money and build up the collection. What do you think about that? I, I think this is a super interesting yeah. idea. It has weird unintended, unintended consequences. It, it does. But I don't know exactly what they <laughs> are even. I think it's – I love the bit of the model that makes building the library's collection responsive to students' needs, mm. that there's sort of no friction between what the students are trying to access and then what will become available to them in the library. Um, like I know a lot of public libraries have a service where you can request that your library order a book in. Like mm-hmm. if it's not the latest Gone Girl, but it's something you've heard about and you want it to be in your library system, but then that you know, falls to the limited budgets of public libraries and a librarian has to decide if there's enough demand in your community to justify that mm-hmm. purchase. So this takes out that friction. I don't know that it's a replacement for having all of the resources that you get in a print book library. Yeah, they do share a um, print library with a neighboring institution, and, so students oh, can okay. go over there to an actual print well, library. But and I guess you know, sixty thousand dollars for ebook purchases—that's a lot of. It's a fair. I mean, if e-books. it's fifteen bucks an ebook, like academic text, text can be a lot mm-hmm. more. But you know, you can easily get. 10,000 books, yeah, I would say. N- not to mention, I guess maybe not to mention 5, all the public domain stuff that you can get the ebooks mm-hmm. for free. Mm-hmm. Uh, so perhaps, you know, a lot of that stuff that's available in, like, say, Google Books for free, you could just pull into this collection yeah. without dipping into that $60,000 pot. Sure. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think there's an access and sort of privilege piece of. You've got to then have something on which to read the ebook. Yeah, and so I mean the, that's fair. Like if the school <sighs> isn't somehow providing or underwriting students having a tablet or an e-reader, then you know people who can't afford one are at a disadvantage since their library is. I guess so. I, I guess that's. I guess that's. I don't know. I guess college seems sufficiently expensive to me that two hundred dollars for a. Kindle Fire HDX is a kind of a drop in the bucket, especially if it um, cuts down on the actual print books you have to buy. I mean, it actually could be a net win. Well, that's win. true. Yeah, thinking about how much... If you're much, not actually buying right, as many print textbooks. It's been things. like nine years since I was in college. Yeah, I think when I was in college, we went to the library and we bought these um, papyrus scrolls. Right. And... We had these camels that we put them on I to had, go to class. It was like, you know, I would I had several psych courses every semester and also a couple English courses every mm-hmm. semester. So the psych textbooks I remember were like a couple hundred bucks a textbook. Like it wasn't uncommon for my books for a semester to be like six or seven hundred dollars total. Yeah, um, I took quite a few science classes because I'm an idiot and um, <laughs> and not very good at science to boot. But like the great scam there was you'd buy them and then sell them back, and they would you know right. Like, so I guess that I mean that's a good point about like the Kindle or even you know like an iPad Mini um, right. or a full sized iPad like five hundred bucks on a device yeah, that you two can biology books yeah 500 bucks that you can use the device to read all of your textbooks digitally that you get from the school library or even if you have to pay a discounted ebook price or something for them 
is just a different place of putting like you're just putting the money in a different place yeah, rather right. than spending $700 on textbooks and then selling them back to the school at the end of the year for like $150 and then crying. This this program itself is interesting but it leads me to ask or to think about a whole host of questions I've never really considered before about library use like this mechanism where the first time someone clicks it, they don't have to pay. Mm. But the second time someone uses it, they does. Suggest to me that a lot of books only get looked at once or never. Yeah. Right? So it's the second time. That's an indication that the school should pony up for that particular book. Um, I'd like to know, just like in my local branch library, like what percentage of the books that the library buys or puts on the shelves never get checked out or gets checked mm-hmm. out once because there's also selection bias like by the nature of something being on the shelf means it's more likely for someone to check it out than something they didn't buy right I mean, right it has to be there to be it has discoverable to be there. so it's not a, this one where if everything's digitally available there's no selection bias in what people are going to check out because even you know back you and i well i'm older than you but when i was at school you know, ebooks didn't exist at all, mm-hmm. uh, at least in a in a way that I understood. So you only really had access to things that were on the shelves, or you could use interlibrary loan, which, when I was nineteen, felt like sending a carrier pigeon to Paris oh, to pick up the tablet. Yeah, or something that's like how that. it was when I was in college and grad school too. You were like. In college, we had to like you know actually make photocopies of yes. the journal articles out of the bound editions of journals in the library. Like I remember right. standing next to a copy machine with a seventy five dollars in quarters, yeah. <laughs> copying stuff. And by the time I got to grad school, we could do digital requests for interlibrary loan, mm-hmm. and the like printed out version of that would show up a couple weeks later. But ebooks, this is still a really new thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, so yeah, that circulation question. I guess it means that they're not going to spend, or they'll spend a lot less money on books that no one will actually use. Right. We should so ask two data points. We should ask some of our book riot librarians. We have several. Yeah, we've got a bunch of them. We've got, <laughs> we got a bunch of them. We should ask them how this. I'm, I'm sure this data is available yeah, somewhere. And I wonder, like, journal. when a library weeds its collection. Um, what the cutoff is, like how long does it need to have been since the last time that book was checked out um, mm. in order for a book to be taken off the shelves? Like li- I know oh. libraries have to function differently than bookstores, like Barnes and right. Noble. When I worked there, at least it was 90 days that if a copy of that book hadn't sold in the last 90 days and it wasn't a book that was just slated by the buyers to always be on the shelves, like Barnes mm. and Noble's always going to have the Great Gatsby, even if someone hasn't bought it in the last ninety days. But if it's front list and it's been there for ninety days and no one has bought this new book, then it's going back so that there's room on the shelf for another thing that might sell. But I wonder well, what that period is for libraries. For a public library and an academic library, I think those are different things. True. Like when I was working on my dissertation at Columbia, like you know, I was checking out books that hadn't been checked out in forty <laughs> years. You know, like I was doing stuff on the Harlem Renaissance, and you know, for one of the chapters, and I was checking out biographies or collections of essays by writers that no one else besides, I guess, me there cared about in several <laughs> decades. Um, and that's why it's a research library. Right. I mean, that's that's what it's there for. Whereas a public library, like my branch library here in Brooklyn, like that's really meant for, you know, things that are circulating. So I don't know uh, exactly how it, how it times out. You know, that's, we talked about the New York Public Library's now, I guess, um, uh, aborted redesign. Mm where they wanted to move a lot of that stuff that didn't get accessed very much, you know, offsite and, you know, take it over to New Jersey. And if someone requested, they have to wait a couple of days. And, you know, people got up in arms about that. But I, part of my opinion about that was like, yeah, that sounds great because 
I, you know, that I was even checking out stuff that was, this is stuff that was printed in the last 50 years. Yeah. That doesn't include things that are like, you know, science texts that are radically out of date right. from like that they wanted to keep and put somewhere else. Well, and, so it's hard to know. And if they could digitize those things that you were checking yeah. out that hadn't been checked out in 40 years, then I would say do that and people can, you know, download the 40 mm-hmm. page article or, you know, whatever it yeah. was that you were getting. And you can then you can make room for new print resources in those research libraries. Um, I'm sure it's even different it's, than the seven, eight years ago. I was. I wonder how long stuff. physical research libraries are going to exist. I mean, of all the of all the like, I think there's a really strong case to be made that some people, for an indefinite amount of time, are just going to prefer print books for their own collections and reading experience. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know. I don't think it's like CDs or vinyl where, you know, once you're actually listening to it, it kind of doesn't matter if it's a CD or vinyl MP3, but the actual physical process of holding something in your hands and reading it, people are just going to have a preference. Like some percentage of people are just going to prefer print. Whether or not it's big enough to sustain print forever, that's an open question. But in this case where it's much more of a, well, I don't care if you want to read, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm just trying to think of something like re- that everyone has to read it. Like, I don't care if you want to read the Nicomachean Ethics mm-hmm. in, in print. Like, we can save a bunch of money and space by just making it digitally available and you read it on your iPad. Yep. I, it just, I, there's too many, library library budgets are so under pressure anyway that like someone's like, I don't know, aesthetic preference for one <laughs> Uh, you know, one experience over the other. I just are you I saying can't. that our resources shouldn't cater to our aesthetic preferences? <laughs> well, I mean, to some, de- I mean, no, to I'm, some degrees, yes, I'm but so not with you. not to to that degree. So I don't know. Like when I got to Columbia and I saw what a real like major world class Ivy League research university was doing. This was two thousand fall of two thousand when I went. The difference between when I was at KU and what they were doing there already seemed like a completely different world in terms of the electronic things they had available. I spent a couple of summers working the library, digitizing library catalogs. Oh, did you really? Yeah, I mean, just like pulling them out and like entering them in the database. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it takes forever, but um, we have a long time to do some of these things. So I, I think it makes a lot of sense, especially as college tuition is so expensive now mm-hmm. that there's going to be more and more pressure to cut costs, I think, at some point. And libraries seem like a place, certainly, that could get cut. Yeah, like, well, and textbook costs, too. Oh, That's just, no, it's it, just, oh. There has to be a better way than the textbook cost. Yeah, right. Like your $150 psychology textbook, like as a value proposition, it seems very hard to justify that. Well, yeah, like things. there's, you know, there's a new edition every year. So yeah. I think I have my ones from my last year of grad school because by the time that I was finished with that year, mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't sell those back for anything. Like I remember taking them to the campus bookstore and then being like, no, you know, next year's class is going to be using a different edition. We don't need these at all. And I don't know if half.com still exists, but I, I think it got bought by buy.com maybe if memory serves, yeah, something like that. I anyway. remember uploading, like inserting those online to see if I could sell my used textbooks online. Like maybe some poor student at a different school was going to have to use last year's version right? <laughs> and I would be happy to sell mine, but uh, nope, I still have them. They're just molding or something. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that an unintended consequence, too, for all the advantages of sort of making infinite choice available and spending your resources on things people actually click on or download is that a library also, like a bookstore, 
uh, like publishing in general can serve a useful gatekeeping mm-hmm. function. This relates to what we're going to talk yep. about here in a minute, where you know part of what a library does is it doesn't maybe have every single book on the Harlem Renaissance that's ever been published because maybe some of those aren't that great. Um, and the library has done a first pass at triaging which ones that are worth resources mm-hmm. to spend upon. Now, I don't know the nature of the collection that the, the good folks at Florida Polytechnic are going to have to choose from, but I wonder if it also takes away some of that curatorial layer mm. that librarians have historically done, leaving students and faculty and whoever is using the library to their own devices well, to try to like, decide between a bunch. What of happens when the sixty thousand dollar budget runs out? For yeah, e-books I mean, do and, they know they have like, some modeling of how fast it's going to go? Yeah, what I'd love to see is when they've spent this sixty thousand dollars, a side by side of this collection against like the first $60,000 that a different academic library spends Mm. on a curated Mm. collection and how much overlap there is or isn't. I also just realized this piece is not, does not include information about how many times one of these digital eBooks can be checked out, which is because nobody knows Rebecca, because (laughs) digital library subscriptions and fees are like like, flying to Paris. Like like Harper changes all the time. Right. Like Harper Collins had made a deal with public libraries where an individual ebook could be checked out 16 times and then they moved to unlimited, but different public, like every publisher has a different set of things. But it would be interesting to know, like on average, these ebooks that are purchased are available to unlimited number of checkouts or on average, each one can be checked out 10 times. Because if you have to double dip into your 60,000 to buy multiple ebook editions of titles that are popular or in demand, mm-hmm. that's a that's another yeah, piece. Yeah, I don't know if academic libraries have a different deal with publishers yeah. um, than public libraries do. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Right. We had a lot of thoughts about this. More thoughts than I, I guess thought so. I mean, we it's would. kind of a it's kind of a worms uh, worm uh, can of worms. That's 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 <laughs> the cliche I'm looking for uh, to get into there. <laughs> Let's jump down. Speaking of um, gatekeeping, let's jump down to this other story here. Um, this was in TechCrunch this week, talking about basically the unimaginable exponential growth of the number of books that are available online. Man. Um, a writer with the improbable name of Claude uh, Nougat is how we would say it in English, but I'm sure it's something different in French. N-O-U-G-A-T estimated the total number of books on Amazon about 3.4 million at last count. It's weird this is something you have to estimate, like stars in the sky right, in the like 19th century not, or something like this. How do we not know the total number of books on Amazon? Because like self-published books don't have ISBNs on Amazon, right? Like does Amazon even know? I mean, they must. Amazon knows. Yeah, but it's probably one of those things where you check the spreadsheet and nine have been That's true. added like by the time you open the document. <laughs> well, so he noticed that the number rose by 12 books in an hour. Yes. Which, so that one new book every five minutes. Yeah. Which is, I know this because I know that there are 525,600 minutes in a year. Yes. Thank you to rent. That That's like 105,000 new books a year. Uh, if not more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's, that's it's crazy what? number of books. Um, Not to mention the robot that's written a hundred thousand books by itself. Yeah, no, don't 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 forget the robots. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is the other side of the availability problem, right? Is that so there's just so much. many, so many. It's a, you know, and this is one thing we've we've struggled with on Book Right. Like, we want to try to, we've been interested in ways to cover self publishing. But we just don't know how to do it, right? Like, how do you 
even understand what titles or authors to pay attention to. It's just very, very difficult. Yeah, I think maybe it's a thing that we approach, that you and I approach from different perspectives Mm -hmm. because I feel like the story about self-publishing being self-publishing is not over, but it's not so new that I'm interested in being like, and this is a book by a self-published author, um, or let's talk about self-published books because there are just so many of them that just books in general it's a, yeah. the pond is bigger now, so it's hard to become a big fish in the pond. Or right. maybe the pond isn't bigger, but there are more fish in it. <laughs> this is I don't know. My, there's there's just a bunch of ponds and fishes, <laughs> my, and we don't. That's our problem. We don't even know if it's a big pond or how many fish or what. My it was uh, the analogy worked in my head. Um, but so, uh, so many books, and they right. note at the base of at the very end of this TechCrunch piece that the trick is to rise above the noise, but it's so much more noise to rise above, whether you're a self-published author or like a mid-list author published by a traditional publishing house, but who doesn't have a big publicity budget. Well, I mean, at least though, I mean, you and I know this, even though there's not a big publicity or marketing budget, at least you get in the catalog, right? They get sent to booksellers and reviewers and a whole bunch of other people. Like you're there to be found and like, Essentially, what's a curated list from the publisher? I mean, mm-hmm. you might as well think about it that well, way. Well, sure, and like a random house rep goes to Word in Brooklyn or to the Fountain right. here in Richmond and talks to them about the big books that Random House is doing that year and the smaller books that Random House is doing that season that are a good fit mm-hmm. for the particular community that the store is located in. And like Barnes & Noble has buyers who think about these things. And so... That's. I mean, I mean, that's a service. There's a lot of talk yeah. in self-publishing about how, like, you don't need a traditional publisher because all they really do is, you know, be a gateway and down with right. the, down with the gatekeepers. But, but you. I kind of think I kind of go the other way. Like, things. I think that was true for a while. That, like, yeah, I mean, when self-publishing was a smaller, whatever pond or fish or whatever, wherever we are on that yeah. analogy, that like, yeah, you don't need a gatekeeper because self-publishing isn't that big and whatever. But now it's like. I almost wonder the rise of self-publishing and the growth that it is like almost what publishers do almost feels more important now, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you've got, if you've got infinitely more titles to stand out from, then the standing out function that publishers can provide might be, you know, that might be the key function right. they, that if they you're provide a, if is you're rather a, than distribution. If you're a writer and you have a shot at getting published by a traditional publishing house, Sure, there are some downsides, like you might not have control over your book's final cover or your, right. or even your book's final title mm-hmm. at publication, but you're going to get, like you were saying, the feature in the catalog. You're going to get sales reps who know things about your book and can talk about it with booksellers. You're going to get the fact that your publisher knows people who do the buying at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble and who control which books get featured on the homepages of those websites yeah, that recommend right. them. You're going to get publicists who know who to email at People Magazine if your book is a great fit for every book club ever. You know, that's these are not small services that publishers provide for authors. And as a reader, I, I just don't still, have time. I, don't, I just yeah. don't have the, I, it's too right. much noise. I still it's impossible. really appreciate uh, the like if you pay attention to imprints and you start to know, okay, well you know, Knopf does this certain thing within Random House, then you can look for that and know that most of the books that come from that imprint are things that are are going to have a good chance of being stuff that you 
enjoy where Mm -hmm. if you're scrolling through just like the top Kindle books, looking for what's popular and what's popular is largely affected by what's cheap on Mm -hmm. Amazon. That just doesn't tell me anything about book quality, yeah. which is not to say that every book a traditional publisher puts out is a good book. You know, there's some turkeys get published every year and some great books don't get published. Uh, but, man, I I, I kind of like the gatekeepers. Yeah, me too. I mean, the other thing that that I have to remember as well is that certain genres have really robust self-publishing communities of readers and writers, mm-hmm. like romance is a classic one. And I think some mystery as well and crime and things of that nature. And I'm sure there are others that yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, sci-fi so fantasy stuff. So on that stuff. level, you know, there could be, there are, could be some self-publishing curatorial communities in action. Mm-hmm. Wattpad does a lot of things like this. But I think there is a lot of reading things that aren't great that happens in those early stages of curation, which I have no interest in discovering something no one else is. That, that's not what I'm, yeah. that's not what I'm trying to do. And you and I, we get pitches all the time from self-published people on Twitter, on Facebook, on email, whatever. And I got I just, it's as an auto delete. Like I don't even look at it. Like I don't, I'm sure I'm missing stuff. Like that's the problem when I come from saying, I'd like to figure out a way to do this is like, I'm sure there are interesting books out there mm-hmm. that'd be interesting to me getting self-published that I'm just missing. And I don't have a way uh, I, I can't think of a mechanism to ameliorate that in any reasonable way. Um, so, yeah, I guess anyway. Yeah, the, it's, this is a there's a second dimension of how this is hairy for you and me than there is for typical readers who like if you're just a reader who doesn't do the jobs that you and I do, then you're you're just combing through what's popular on Amazon, I guess, trying to decide what looks good right. to you. Yeah. And at that point, you might not even know what's self-published possible. or yeah. not. And that's, I think that's great. Like that, that distinction doesn't occur for readers um, as much as it used to. But for us, or at least for me, I'll speak for myself, mm-hmm. being in media, it's not just what I'm getting pitched, but how the pitch happens. And, you know, you know, a publicist or a self-published author who's paying attention knows that you don't just tweet links about books at <laughs> members right. of the media publicly. You find their email address, you send them a nice email, you explain what your book is, and then you get out of the way. And if they want to cover it, they will. And if they don't, they won't. And you don't need to follow up. 800 times. But in my daily experience, the majority of the pitches that come in in a way that the pitch itself and the way it's conducted, like the the mechanism of the pitch irritates mm-hmm. me. So I ignore the content yeah, of me the pitch. Too. And me too. that I'm sure I'm also missing out on things, but I'm not going to start tolerating irritating stuff that doesn't respect my time. Right. Yeah, that, that's true. And I guess the the larger point I think we're both sort of thinking about is, is it possible that self-publishing is kind of like a gold rush where, you know, the first couple waves of people, you know, you have some success and maybe people in the, the consequent waves, you, there's people that get lucky, but just the mere presence of so many people right. makes, the, makes the phenomenon less valuable on the whole. It gets so diluted against so many um, competing interests mm-hmm. that, you know, after the gold rush, you have to, well, we used all that well, up. Now we have to go back to mining gold the regular old-fashioned yeah, way. Yeah, and it gets, I think the gold rush is a great analogy. And 
right now, self-publishing, there's this glut of pieces being written by the small group of people who have had big success mm-hmm. in self-publishing, who are kind of the, like the prophets of doing right. it. And, and I use that term intentionally because there are some of the writing about self-publishing feels like they're trying to convert you to a religious cult. Um, right. Yeah, it's weird in self-publishing. It's almost like if in a gold rush, if you found gold, that would give you a better chance of finding more gold, right? Because now Hugh Howey has a platform that other self-published people really don't, which might affect the results of his self-publishing effort. You know, it's like very difficult to parse. The chances of any author, be they self-published or traditionally published, becoming a bestseller or selling a million copies of their book are super slim because of the number of books that are published every year. But this TechCrunch piece also points out, you know, if you think that self-publishing and going through Amazon is going to be your golden ticket because a couple people have won that golden ticket from Amazon, you're you're doing bad logic. And uh, Amazon has made it easier to get published, but that means that more people are doing it. And so you have more competition like that's mm-hmm. i feel like that's just a piece that's not being ha- like that's not being discussed often enough and Hugh Howey is news and Amanda Hawking before him was news and E.L. James was news and J.A. Conrath was news because they were unusual it's like Kate Upton is news because a woman who looks that way is uncommon right. you know supermodels well, are let's uncommon be fair, like people who aren't you or I are listening to this show like you know good serious readers who read you know 25 to 50 books a year most of them don't know who Amanda Hawking are, or who Hugh Howie are. Like, even a big self-publishing success is so dwarfed by Dee Brizzle or Patterson, Neil Gaiman. Gay- I mean, it's just it's just a completely different scale. J- J.K. Rowling. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's it's very difficult to know, but I do wonder if it's becoming so flooded um, that it's going to be very difficult even more difficult mm-hmm. for self-published people to have any kind of success. And, and maybe they use different vectors of success. Maybe if you, you, you wanted to get traditionally published or even if you didn't want to and you wrote a book and 150 people buy your 99 cent ebook, maybe, maybe you're happy with that. And I don't, I'm not trying to say that's a success or failure except to say, did the person who write that and spent all that time doing it, do they think of it as, do they feel good or bad about mm-hmm. it? If I spent time writing a novel, which knowing me would take 9,000 years, <laughs> um, and 150 people bought it for 99 cents. That's kind of that wouldn't be enough. I'd rather give it away for free mm-hmm. and get it oh. read than, than do it that way. So when we were talking in the library segment about wondering how many times a typical book is checked out from a library, yeah. I would like to know that how many purchases does the average book that's available on Amazon get in a year, and what does the curve look like? Like I'd, I'm sure it's all screwed up. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's got the longest long tail. Right, of I was going to say I don't think this is a normal curve situation. There's probably a giant clump at the low end, a small yeah. clump at the high end, and then like a scattering. But if someone has that data, I would love to see it. Yeah, I would love to see that as well. I mean. I think self-publishing is going to need to find some sort of equilibrium because the other thing is there's way more books than there are readers. Mm-hmm. Like if you think of like, I don't know, maybe maybe uh, let's say for a minute that digital reading and ebooks have expanded the the pie of the number of books that can be read. That that American let's keep it to what we know a little bit about American readers will read in a year. Um, let's say that you know I don't know you got to think of it like 
Uh, we have to use some sort of, oh, let's use an average book riot reader because we did that poll yeah. in like 75 books a year mm-hmm. is what the average book riot reader did. Well, let's say that self-publishing and digital books, because it makes things easier to acquire and they're cheaper, let's say that moves it up to 85 books a year, right? Right. But that's not growing at the same pace as the available books. Right. So it has to be the case that the average title is getting is being read less. Mm-hmm. Even though the total pie has grown, it still is the case that there's way too many, there's way too many pies getting to shove right. into way too and many the, mouths. There are just a few outliers yeah. that people are eating multiple slices of. Yeah, boy, we're our, meta- <laughs> our metaphors are falling apart. Today. Let's move along. Let's go to Omaha, Jeff. Yeah, let's go, let's go let's go to the great state of Nebraska, somewhere in Middle America. Do you know what the state motto of Nebraska is? Why would I know what the state motto of Nebraska is? You're from the Midwest like I am. (laughs) I can give you the Kansas state motto. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, do you know what the state motto of Nebraska is? No, it wasn't a quiz. I was (laughs) asking there. I don't. Okay, well, I'm sure it's 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 like I think it's actually it's called between Dakota and Kansas. That's what this. You know what I do know though is that the Omaha Public Library now has a book bike. Yeah, they do. They do. It's. A book-powered book, or a bike-powered bookmobile. It's like I a, guess it's technically a human-powered bookmobile, right? Well, I guess technically. Yeah. You know, when we were in Vancouver a couple weeks ago, I learned about how bicycles are the mo- like one of the most efficient forms of transport. Yeah. That like most of the energy you put into them, you, you get back out. So this is a people-powered, highly efficient bookmobile. And how many? How many uh, does it say? Books does it hold? Does it? It say doesn't say, but it's a trailer that they you know pull along behind a bicycle, which I imagine is kind of like one of those trailers. It's taller than the trailer that you can like pull your kids or your dog mm-hmm. around in. Um, I would rather pull around a bunch of books behind my bicycle. Uh, probably a couple dozen titles and mm-hmm. it's stocked with books and with iPads so that people can use the iPad to sign up for a library card and download ebooks and learn about the other services. I like that. And I like the book is the, the book. I, I keep saying book when I mean bike, but the bike is <laughs> Wi-Fi enabled. Maybe I should be Wi-Fi enabled. I mean, I can don't I, can I make see, that happen. Why not? Can we... <laughs> Can we just get sponsored? They're like a yeah by a hotspot. <laughs> yeah, the the login is Squarespace. Right, the Jeff O'Neill hotspot is the coming hotspot. to you. <laughs> uh, so librarians in Omaha are pedaling the bike bookmobile. That's really around. Awesome. I think that's so cool. I think we saw something similar in a different town recently, like maybe well, in recently, like in the last year of mm-hmm. the show, where they were going to farmers markets and stuff. Yes. Um, so it's about. I'm trying to think of. It's so, uh, I'm it's, using going to so use cute. New York analogies, mm. which I don't know if people really know, but like in New York, there's these little carts that people do, like Italian ices. They pull mm-hmm. around, and it's it's about six feet, you know, five or six feet wide, yeah. and about three feet tall. Um, and it has sliding glass doors on the side. I think it holds probably 50 books. I don't know if there's shelves on both sides. It can't. It doesn't have a yeah. It's hard to tell picture that goes all the way around. But then like a little pop up thing on the top that can become a little desk or checkout situation. I think it's super. It's like super cute. Yeah. It says you know it'll be a staple at street fairs, parades, festivals, outdoor concerts. I think that piece is brilliant because you know like if yes. you go to an outdoor concert or community theater or something. 
usually those things start after dark, but you've got to get there early. And mm. if you didn't bring a deck of cards or a book to read or something while yes. you're sitting there eating and waiting for the thing to start, like that, this is a great captive audience for, uh, for people who just want something to read in that moment. But also it looks like they have a lot of children's books on it and how great is that like mm. you're sitting with your kids at a festival and they're getting antsy and you want story time, but you don't have story time with you and you can just go to the bike bookmobile. The book well, bike. Amanda and I were talking about bookmobiles um, when she was on the show and I, we were sort of kidding around like book ride should have a thing or, or bookstore yeah, should take yeah. the farmer's markets. Like this is something that a bookstore should do. Like if they're go, if there's like a big festival or mm -hmm. whatever, like they could stock it up with 50 topical books and sell them right there. Well, Use our iPads, do Square, check out, and our, I, I feel like that would yeah, work. Our friends at Word in Brooklyn have a van ah. that um, I think it's like a... Something, there's something sketchy about it. <laughs> no, it's a I cool one. Say. It's like a funky looking uh -huh, VW sure. van. Yeah, right, because no one the... ever has done anything sketchy in a VW van. <laughs> sure. Sounds great. Booksellers, right man. In. Roll no it windows. back. Roll it back. <laughs> <laughs> so they like they you know will stop the word they'll stock up the word van with stuff and go to an event and penguin has that book truck that they're taking to events right. yes now but i want to see more of this i love that these kinds of innovations are coming out of the budget crunches and sort of oh. like the difficulties that libraries are having of course it's not great that libraries are struggling in some ways but people are innovating and yeah. in really awesome, creative ways. And it's cool to see that. Like, well, okay, we don't have money to do this thing. So what are the other ways that we could reach our community and serve readers in our area? And they're coming up with stuff like the book bike, which is so great. I think we're also approaching Portlandia. Like, you know, we can pickle that, but it's going to be like, we could bookmobile that. Yeah, we, or we can do something with this bike. Right. Yeah, we can book, yeah, like, we can, but we can make this into a library. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we can yeah, library Yeah, I think that. it is interesting, too, that scarcity, and maybe it's because I've been reading the, or listening to this Bill Bryson and the last parts are about evolution, but like scarcity leads to invention and mm -hmm. adaptation. Um, that doesn't mean that it's great that libraries have to shuck and jive like this, but sometimes if you're fully funded and you're fat and happy and everything is going like you think it should and has gone in the past, that you're not very motivated to change and try other things, even if those things would be result in a salutary benefit to, you know, you and your readers and customers and things of that nature. So um, hopefully this will work out. Budgets will come back and we can do all the great things at all the times. That sounds like right. the right thing. And to all the great things would include cool mobile libraries, I think. Yeah, I think. Um, you want to hear about our next sponsor yeah let's let's hear about our next sponsor uh, this week's show is also sponsored by bombay blues by tanuja desai hidier uh, 12 years ago she changed the face of ya literature with her debut novel which was called born confused um, it was one of the very first ya novels to feature a south asian american as the protagonist it's kind of staggering that that happened just 12 years ago like we're still really mm -hmm. catching up in the Boy, having yeah. diverse characters in American fiction. I don't even sure that we're catching up. I think we're, we're just, just putting our shoes right, on a little bit. Right, we're just beginning bit, uh, to. Um, you know. Born Confused is about Dimple Lala, who uh, was a 17-year-old girl caught between her American life and her Indian heritage. And the story gave voice to a multicultural 
generation. Um, it was set in New York City against a club scene. The book was widely acclaimed. Um, publications like Entertainment Weekly and Rolling Stone, um, but also industry publications as one of the best young adult novels of all time. And so Bombay Blues now, 12 years later, is out as the sequel. And Dimple is 19 and she is going to Bombay, Mumbai, uh, to come face to face with the culture uh, that is her heritage, but that she's really just starting to understand because she was grown, uh, she was raised in America. So uh, this second novel, mm. long time coming, really yeah. uh, cements this author as a voice, not just for South Asian teens, but for anyone struggling with identity. Um, and most of, you know, most of or much of the inspiration for Born Confused and the Bombay Blues stems from uh, Tanuja Desai Hidier's personal struggle um, with identity while growing up in New York City. Um, and also available, this is cool, is her album, Bombay Spleen. What? Yes, right? Whoa. Which is an album of original songs that are linked to the Bombay Blues. And uh, some of it is available on Spotify and iTunes. So you can also hear that. Cool. Yeah, right? I've never heard of this book. I'm super interested in yeah, this book. Born our, confused. That's available. You can, it's still in print. It is you still in print. And um, oh, Kelly Jensen, who is one of our uh, Book Riot contributing editors and is a former YA librarian, has written about Born Confused a couple of times on the site. It does seem to really be a, a landmark book, mm. but um, this seems to me it kind of sounds like a young adult take maybe on some of the issues that Jhumpa Lahiri handles hmm. um, and as just one example in um, the namesake. Well, that's interesting because that was, let's see, Interpretive Maladies was around, it was like 97, 98. So yeah. it's okay, this, is, this was right, after. And, right, and like the namesake was early 2000s, but mm -hmm. this conversation about um, what it's like to be a first-generation um, American whose family and whose identity are still closely tied to your originating culture, but yeah. you're also an American. What it's like to be caught in in that tension. Uh, is this out now? Is this available now? It's available it now. It is available now. Yeah. And so the first one is called Born Confused, mm -hmm. and this is the sequel, right. Bombay Blues. Right. Okay. All right. And Sounds then good. there's Bombay Spleen, the album of original songs, which, I mean, what a great name for an album. <laughs> Like knowing nothing about what that music sounds like, I want to listen to something <laughs> called Bombay Blues. So thank you uh, to the publisher uh, for sponsoring the show. And if you're interested in Bombay Blues, we'll have a link in the show notes for you. Okay. Uh, let's do a little adaptation news. What's that next? Maybe only you and I care about. <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. Uh, but Tom Hanks and uh, Ron Howard are teaming up again <gasps> to bring Robert Langdon. Yes. Back to the big screen. Notice They're skipping symbologist. The, oh, notice uh, world-famous <laughs> symbologist Robert Langdon coming back to the big screen. They're skipping the lost symbol, and they're going right to the inferno. Yes. So it's coming. Uh, let's you see. Know, we'll start filming in April. So probably maybe summer 2016, I'm, I'm guessing. Christmas 2016. Jeff, I am so excited about this right now because when you Couldn't told me. Couldn't be happier with this. When, when you told be me happier. before we started the show that you were putting in a link about how the Inferno is being made into a movie, I thought you were talking about Dante. Oh, no. I'm this talking is, about Dan Brown. Man, this is so much better. <laughs> so the... It's interesting. This is a piece in io9 that just basically picked up a press release, but they were speculating why didn't the lost symbol get made into a movie, even though it's sort of, you know, it's had time. They've, Howard and Hanks clearly decided for some reason not to do I that. I mean, 
What did you think of the I lost symbol? I did not love the lost symbol. But you liked, I liked the Inferno materially better than the lost yes, symbol. Did you? Okay. I did. Um, well, I know we both love Dan Brown for what Dan Brown does. Like, yes. I think for a Dan Brown book, you always, you pretty much always get what you're expecting. And we yeah, in the lost, I don't want Langdon mucking about in Philadelphia. Like, that's not what I'm looking <laughs> for. I, and I think I really like how outlandish a lot of the conspiracies are in the Dan Brown books and the lost right. symbol one, um, which is mostly Freemasons set. And it's set in D.C. and right in Philadelphia. Um, it's just not as crazy feeling as the conspiracies in the other books because mm. – like I had never heard of the Illuminati before the Dan Brown right. book, but you've heard like there have been a gajillion things about well, like the National Treasure, right? right? That's like that's like a bad version of right. And the National Dan Geographic Brown, Channel has done you know seventeen billion little oh, miniature documentaries. Oh yeah, they should call that the Mason Conspiracy Channel. That's a really good <laughs> Nazis and Freemasons. That's what the History Channel is. Um, so this is excellent so this is, news because it's it's in Italy. They're looking at paintings. You know they're. They're, they're they're lopping heads off statues to they're find like, secret messages. You know, running through the uh, rooms at the back of museums. Yeah, and, you're in underground grottos, which I guess is redundant. But anyway, and noted um, symbologist Robert Langdon will check his Mickey Mouse watch. I just, I this is great. I this just, is what we look for. Yeah, I love a Dan Brown. Did you like the Do you like the movies? Did you like? Oh the yeah, movies? I love a you good did. like a good capery heisty solve a ridiculous movie. Solve mm -hmm. a ridiculous uh, mystery movie is like right up my alley. Right, and for some, whenever the Da Vinci Code, more than Angels and Demons, which I also like mm -hmm. mostly because for the Rome stuff. But if Da Vinci Code is on TV and I'm flipping around, like I get sucked in. I'm like, oh yeah, there's this part, and like, there's Ian McKellen, right, and like, there's Audrey Tattoo. It's and ridiculous, a but it's great. Yeah, yeah, it's it, this. The, Infern <laughs> it'll make a good movie. It will, and for like, what this there will is be. a you know an unnecessary love moment like love story there's always is that, is that what that is we're never we're, we've talked about this before <laughs> but is that is it supposed to be romantic tension no one can tell well i just think it's like you know robert langdon just doesn't read to me as a sexy guy and neither mm -hmm. does tom hanks so i have trouble with this character believing that like you know, running, you're running around solving this mystery with your girl Friday and she's cute and usually younger. And so, of course, she is wooed by noted symbologist Robert Langdon's knowledge of all things. But yeah. I think you're mm. like you a couple years ago, you compared Robert Langdon to Rick Steves. Oh, yeah. He's Rick Steves. <laughs> right. Dressed up Which as Indiana like Jones. The least sexy thing that I can think of. <laughs> you don't like a silk shirt and a fanny pack? <laughs> It's not, that's not, it's, that's not in. I got to change. My <laughs> that's out. It's, it's not I, I 1993 mean, anymore. That's not what rings my bells, man. You know, I've seen Rick, St I, Michelle and I like to watch Rick Steves on Sunday oh, mornings. Oh, we, we do so we too. Travel. Yeah. And have you seen the more recent ones? Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's got a better haircut now. Like age is doing all right. He's aging well, Rick Steves. I mean, he's uh, aging well for being Rick Steves. <laughs> well, he's aging up. <laughs> You know, he looks, he looks better. He's, like, he's the like hitting better. the age gap where, again, it's okay to wear a fanny pack habitually. Right. Like it's, you know, <laughs> he's been old forever, but now That's he's right. actually. Can you imagine old. Rick Steve like 14? Oh, God. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. It is hard his to glasses, imagine. His hair was you bigger. Just, you know he's looked the same. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. we're talking about anymore. Other uh, than. We're talking about the, Robert Langdon. The romantic 
storylines in the Dan Brown books are always unnecessary and ridiculous. But I guess like if you're running around solving a mystery and your heart is pounding, maybe you do the transference thing and look at the person across from you and think your heart is pounding because of that person and not because you're being so. chased by a conspiratorial madman. <laughs> I get. I guess so. Um, so the Inferno is set around. It's in Italy mostly, um, and it's there's like a bioterrorism thing. And there's this yeah. is no spoilers. Right. This is all stuff you can can read. Um, I think it'll make it. It's it's everything I want. I'm gonna watch it, man. Oh, oh yeah, I'm gonna watch this for it's sure. It's perfect for summer too. I think those movies usually come out uh, Christmas time, but I could I could be misremembering that. I'm so excited. So look for that. Um, I'm excited for that. Is it? I guess we talked about Inferno when the show started last May, so it's going to be a few years before we get another one. I could read it. Well, yeah, lost, there was like six years between the Da Vinci Code oh, come and on, Lost Dan. Symbol, but I think they were just riding the Da Vinci Code wave as long as they could. Maybe. And then Lost that Symbol thing didn't come out in hardback for like 900 right. years. And then Lost Symbol didn't do very well, and we didn't have to wait very long after Lost Symbol to get mm-hmm. Inferno. Um, there was Dan a thing. Brown, oh, go ahead. Well, when, when we were talking about Inferno, there was a thing about what the next book is about, but I don't remember now what Dan Brown is writing oh, about next. He said it was. He said he was writing something, but he wouldn't tell us what it was, and we were speculating. Ah. And I wanted um, Nazi um, art stealing. That's what I wanted mm. to be. I remember this distinctly like because the I still want Men? that book. Yeah, I want Dan Brown's version of Monuments Men. Or, but like set in present day, where like there's a secret cache of Nazi art that uh, has magical properties. Mm. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. That's being run by Freemasons. <laughs> um, this book has all the things. Uh, just, just print it up, print money. <laughs> I think Dan Brown needs to go the James Patterson route. Just get some like indentured servants to write the novels and you put your name on it and sell a billion of them, have one come out every summer. And there's a checklist of like you have to have Robert Langdon swim laps. Yes. At least this many times. There's a lot of swimming. There is. A lot of swimming. And um, he needs, a lot of checking of watches. There's uh, a there got to be a couple references to his tweed jacket. <laughs> Have to write at least one Vespa in a European city. At all. <laughs> Actually, yeah. when Inferno came out, I did awkward use of the internet. I did um, Dan Brown by the numbers. Yes, that's right. That I, was an excellent. Where I counted like the number of times that the Mickey Mouse watch is mentioned, and the number of times that. Robert Langdon narrowly escapes danger. Maybe when we get wind that there's a no one, new one coming out, we'll go revisit the old Dan Brown novels and put together like a bingo card or a, a Dan Brown drinking game yes. for while you're reading the book. That's something that's good. I like that we're planning um, one-off novelty posts and <laughs> that will happen three years from now. It seems like a good use of our time and attention. I'm personally very excited about a Dan Brown drinking game. <laughs> You know what I also love is that, by all accounts, Dan Brown is a really nice guy. It is. It is. With t- who made terrible rock music in his early oh, life. Right. But don't, don't forget about that. All right. What are we doing here? I don't know. Out of, we spent way too much time on that. Uh, what do you want to do? What do you, you want to go for? I tell, tell, tell me some talk things. about, uh, let's talk about where do ebooks go when you die? Where do well, they take them up to this farm upstate. Die? Um. It's, and they run. They take them to a farm upstate, and they run around with all the other ebooks. That's what happens. And they just relax in the sunshine. Yeah, that's right. And you can maybe we'll go visit them someday, Johnny, but not today. Um, <laughs> there's a piece in Slate. This is something that for some reason comes up every now and again mm-hmm. about what happens to ebooks. Enjoy. This is related to a new Delaware law. Um, which broadly states that digital assets, uh, which include email, social media content, but also audio, video, images, and sounds, 
blah, 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 are controlled by the deceased trustees only to the extent allowed by the original services end user license agreement, okay. which means nobody knows. Right. Because who... And no, then it's, it's different for it's every fact service. that no human has ever read an end user license agreement. Um, they keep stats fact. on this um, at the Seed Centers for Disease Control <laughs> about people reading the EULAs. So if you've read your <laughs> Kindle or iTunes EULA, you'd know just how little control over your ebooks or music you have. I'm reading verbatim now. You can tell that because it's coherent and has verbs and nouns and predicates. Every time you Ooh, hit a buy predicate. button at the Kindle store, you are not purchasing ebook. You are licensing it for personal use only. Even if you reread your copy of The Hobbit twice um, a year for 10 years, you are no closer to owning it. And without Amazon's permission, no close to being able to hand it down to your children. I guess there must be some said subset of people that are super concerned about this. I, I just am not worried about what's going to happen to my ebooks if I, you know, when, when I uh, go off to, well, to the farm upstate. Also, like, how are they going to know? You know, like, just, it's just your passwords, right? Right. Just like, your passwords. I mean, if I get hit by a bus this afternoon, mm -hmm. you know, my husband's going to figure out what the passcode on my iPad is and it's, and then he'll be able to read whatever's like in my Kobo library. Kobo's not going to know that I died and now someone else is doing it. Right? Like how do I they guess. plan to enforce this? Is that I why guess. it's not, I mean, is that why it's really not a big deal because it's almost unenforceable? Like, mm. Like there's not some, a, some planners are telling their clients to set up trusts while what? they're alive and having the trust buy the digital I assets. I mean, I guess maybe if you've spent you've thousands of have a lot of ebooks to make that or work. Like if you think spent, of your lawyers, if you've spent thousands of dollars on your digital music collection, but those are at least through iTunes. You like, those are files that are DRM free. That like right. They're not the Kindle thing where you're basically paying for the right to access it through your Kindle app. Yeah. I mean, that is a that is mm -hmm. a fundamentally different. But that one, then you just get the hard drive. You just you know you got the person's computer. Right. So I, I don't know who, who's worried about this. this. Maybe it's just a thing you can write like, a good headline about, yeah, and then either, everyone's like, "Oh, I'm bored to death now." This What's is either rape? just not really a thing to worry about, or there's some big piece of it that we don't know of. But I can't figure out why I should be concerned. I don't know if movies you buy through Amazon are different than the ebook license. Like, do you actually get a file if you buy a book to Amazon? Like, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's who's what who's going to get the rights to that movie I watched on Netflix six months ago? Like, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like something that's that. Yeah. Though, if you are worried about passing on things to your kids in terms of books, maybe for now you like something you might want to pass on or that you think is valuable, buy it in print. Right. And, and maybe also this is just a symptom of the times that we haven't totally figured out how to talk about digital stuff mm -hmm. that we own in the same way that we talk about printed stuff or vinyl that we right. own. And so the solution also could be that we move to thinking about eBooks as a file that you purchase and own and instead of thinking of them as a thing that you buy a license to access like that would yeah. redefining that would solve the problem or you go the other way and you think of it as netflix streaming like right. you're basically paying for the experience of being able to watch it or read it at a given time mm -hmm. but there's no like in perpetuity transferable to anyone forever and ever amen um when i would guess the number of people who want to pass their collected stuff on 
greatly exceeds the number of people who want to receive someone's uh, passed on collected stuff. Well, let me just say the very little experience I have with um, books getting passed on from people who have died, generally speaking, you, don't, you usually don't want it. I mean, well, like my dad. very few of your grandfathers are like, book collectors with things of true value. It's sure. just, it's not a problem or, like, for most my people. My dad's got this great collection of 70s vinyl and right. I'm, it's going to be mine someday, but like all I really want from it is meatloaf bad out of hell. <laughs> I bet you could make an arrangement with him at this point. <laughs> I bet you could, I bet you could do some horse trading. <laughs> would, would you take a horse for it? Like a full grown horse? Is that what it, but would it's going to be like, I feel like there, dad, if you're listening someday, I'm just going to level with him and be like, look, I want the meatloaf and the three dog night, but you don't need to leave me the rest of it. <laughs> But I, I guess what I'm saying is if you were to say, you know, you're working on your new Squarespace, mm-hmm. you know, site one night and you bop over to eBay, like how much does it really cost to get a three dog night vinyl? Like, well, is it, no, is it more see, than 20 or right. 30 and bucks? It's also, like, I, don't like, I mean, it. I can listen to Meatloaf Bad Out of Hell on Spotify any old time I want. It's yes. that I want my dad's vinyl uh, copy okay. that gotcha. has all the nostalgia. But like all of my dad's other vinyl that I have no nostalgia for, I don't, I mean, and maybe I'm just a cold-hearted turd but i don't want all of it just because it used to be his only some of I it understand. has you know no, that's that's fine and i mean the other thing is that ebooks since they're just files and not collectible which right as soon as i say that it's hard to imagine that there is some sort of collectible digital ebook they're not going to have value in the same way anyway mm-hmm. as collectible rare books because they're not rare. They're digital right. files. And people like, who want to collect rare books are going to collect them yeah. in print and they'll probably just become more valuable because they'll be more rare as more people start reading digitally. Let's see. The question people are dancing around is, as we move from an ownership to subscription model, that we are giving away not only the right to resell our stuff and recoup its value, but also a degree of control. Yeah, that is what you're doing. Yeah. You're, paying, you're paying less. Right. And recoup its... So you don't have as much control. Recoup its value. Like every year or so, we also get a story about people wanting to resell used eBooks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm sorry, how is it... How is it the same thing? It's not like your ebook is dented and scratched. <laughs> so yeah, you're I, knocking a couple bucks off of it to sell the file back to someone. I may one day inherit my mother's stack of Joni Mitchell records, but given what they represent of her life and taste, I believe they'd be of equal sentimental value to me if they came in MP3 format. What? No. I, I, I don't know. I, maybe these people are weird. Like maybe they communicate with each other in Morse code or maybe something like that's. That this is also, it's me. just a weird time to be a reader because of the, like we're so in transition between these things. Like in 20 years, I don't think this will be a question. Like people who are five years old now or 10 years old now, and then become adults who are just, mm-hmm. who just become adults where most media that they consume is digital, they're going to have a different relationship to owning media than yeah. than you and I have because we made the move from owning media to licensing and streaming media than our parents have who have always owned the media that they consumed. It's yeah. a generational... Are we really ready to cede the tradition of giving our children the culture detritus of our time? <laughs> Contracts, licenses, and non-transferable rights. Detritus is a I, I was good say, word I think the choice word choice there. there is is telling. No one wants detritus. Like only like catfish and slugs care about detritus. <laughs> um, all right. Well, all right. We got to do our last, sponsor, our last sponsor and then new books. New books. Random House Audiobooks. They're back, they're back, they're back, they're back. Go to tryaudiobooks.com. So what Random House Audiobooks has put together is like a little tool 
if you've got some time that you can spend, that you're doing some sort of task or activity or hobby or whatever, knitting, they can also listen cooking. to an audiobook at the same time. Cooking, gardening, playing video games, watching sports. You know, we've talked about all these things. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you're um, cur- maybe you're getting ready to pass down your MP3 collection to your kids. Um, <laughs> Sitting in all, your lawyer's waiting getting, room. Getting all that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe you're writing bills, writing checks to your lawyers. Um, you can use their tool to figure out a book that might make sense. You can choose by length of time you have, what you're doing, you know, kind of the mood. Exercising, one, one we've talked about before, mm-hmm. a lot of people like to, to listen to audiobooks while exercising is motivation, not only to get there because you get to re- listen to the next chapter, but you stay a little bit longer because you're enjoying the process. So you can listen to your favorite author, newest bestseller, give your routine a fresh new perspective. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It's like something you have to do all the time. Um, but this you can... Uh, you can add an audiobook into the mix. Like if you're if you got to drive kids around to sports practice or you're waiting to pick somebody up or you're waiting at the doctor's office, like the doc if you're going to the doctor like that's an automatic 45 well, minutes of time. You listen while you're grocery shopping, don't you? I do. I I, I often do. Um, in the car all the time. So go to tryaudiobooks.com and you can start listening. What are you listening to on audio right now? It's not a Random House audiobook, okay, but well, I am, this, yeah, just I, I'm listening it. to uh, Think Like a Freak by Stephen mm. J. Dubner and Stephen Levitt, who wrote the two Freakonomics books, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. Um, I talked about it a little bit last week, but this is this book was written in response to a bunch of the questions that they got from people after those first two books who were like, hey, here's this phenomenon that I'm wondering about. Can you do the Freakonomics approach to this phenomenon? And rather than do the Freakonomics approach to all of those things that people had questions about, they thought it's, this is the Teach a Man to Fish book. Um, Mm. So it's, if you want to start answering the kinds of questions that the Freakonomics guys answer, or you want to start using their approach Um, which is pretty unique to the problems and questions in your own personal or work life, then here is how you do it. So it's, the book is about thinking about how you think um, and then how to structure. Metacognition. That might be my favorite word. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Yeah. So it's about, it's metacognitive and it's about uh, how to structure your own thinking about problem solving and uh, new ideas and answering questions in ways that will lead to better and more creative answers and to, that will lead to maybe actually getting at like the root cause of a thing rather than the obvious cause. Um, I am definitely doing the like, hey, 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 did you know? Mm-hmm. Did you know? Because it, it's sprinkled with facts and examples um, alongside the method stuff. So I'm learning all kinds of you know, weird, random, you know, make me awesome at the dinner parties I don't go to uh, facts from it. What are you listening to? You're still on Bill Bryson, right? I, I fin- yes, I finished um, a short history of everything or a brief history, of, a short history of nearly, nearly everything. everything. I just finished. Um, Michelle is listening to that now so that she doesn't have to listen to me <laughs> do the hey, hey thing, the, how many atoms <laughs> there are in a basketball and stuff like the that. The hey, did you know? But I think I'm on the, Bry- the Bryson train to the end of the line now. Are you? Uh, I'm getting ready to start um, at home by Bill Bryson, which is a short history of private life. So it's kind of doing like using the house as a way of thinking about private life and domesticity mm-hmm. over time. Um, it sold 6 million copies in the U.S. <laughs> when it came out. It's a huge success. 
Um, I'm just getting ready to start that, but I think I'm going to go through the whole, I'm just going to rip through the catalog. I knew this would happen. I've been putting off Bryson for a while because I, I was like, you know, this sounds just like the kind of thing I want to listen on audiobooks. This is from, this is a Random House title, mm-hmm. actually. Have Anchor you done books. a walk in the woods? No, that's outdoors. I mean, that's, <laughs> oh, the outdoors is okay. I no, don't mind Jeff, it. you're going to love it's it. It's my second favorite like doors. Bill Bryson is the least outdoorsy man ever. So yeah. him going into the outdoors is hilarious. Well, I, I'm sure I'm supposed to relate to that, but won't it make me feel bad? about myself no, I don't know it's just funny okay he's, but, he's enough older than you that it'll be like you're not outdoorsy funny you, uncle so you, you read that one I read, I read it a while ago My but is it more of a humor thing or more of like an, uh, a natural history kind of thing it's like Cheryl Strayed's wild but with old men and more slapstick and less philosophy <laughs> mm, yeah see I'm not I'm not as I'm not as down I like the like I like the pop culture history kind of thing that Bryson does. Uh, okay, yeah, then a walk that. in the woods. You'll get some random facts about the Appalachian Trail, but not enough. It's more about the story. Yeah, okay. I mean, hey, listen, I'm going to do it. I, I mean, I'm going to get there eventually, but it just might be when I'm scraping the dregs and I, you know, I have to, I have to one, scrounge up um, a few more books. In a Sunburned Country is his yeah, travel log from Australia. Right? That's a great that's a great one. It'll scratch the Rick Steves. There's one bitch. that's about small town America, which I think is called I'm a Stranger Here Myself. Yeah, I've read that one. That's great. Um, anyway, he's got a billion books. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, I think, is his newspaper columns that he wrote. Oh, right. He wrote it while living in England, but about American right, life. Right, right, right. Uh, There's one. He's got one about Shakespeare. He's got a, mm-hmm. one that's right up my alley, which is One Summer America 1927, which is... Um, Right in the middle of my particular area of mm-hmm. interest and expertise back when I had interest and He's expertise. something of a polymath, isn't he? I, I think so. I mean, it's hard to think of a contemporary equivalent, um, uh, an American, excuse yeah. me, not a contemporary, but a uh, continental. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's what I'm into right now on... Uh, listening to that on audio. So, so let's, tell us, let's talk about new books. Yeah, new books. Okay, I could not have planned this week's new books pairing any better. It's almost like publishing did it on purpose, and I mm-hmm. don't know if they did. Uh, but new out in hardcover is Curious, The Desire to Know and Why Your Future Depends on It by Ian Leslie. I'm so excited for Curiosity getting its moment, and we're moving past creativity. Anyway, continue <laughs> with that. You know what I'm talking about? I do. I feel like Curious is out there. It's like it's kind of in the the buzzy zeitgeist. Yeah, it is. Um, so this uh, this book, first of all, it has this great cover with an owl whose head is sort of cocked, and he looks like he's going to ask you a question. Owls um, are the best. Ian Leslie's take, is, and I've just started reading this, is that um, we're all born curious. Uh, and, you know, kids are innately curious about how the world works and, like, your job as a child is to figure out stuff and ask questions and problem solve about what it, how this earth of ours functions. Um, but that we don't all stay curious as we grow up and that the people who become the most successful and who have the largest impact on the world, though, do maintain their curiosity. And so the book is partly about the necessity and importance of curiosity for innovation and moving the world and technology and developments forward for solving problems. But Ian Leslie also takes the perspective that um, the wired world, which is his term, that we live in where you can have any question answered immediately by Dr. Google um, is a danger slash detriment to curiosity. Mm. Um, That's where I part ways with him. I find that being able to get an answer to any question I have makes me ask better questions Mm -hmm. in the long run. Um, But there's enough of a split 
in, like there are, are enough, there's enough of a divide in the public conversation about this, about whether, you know, the being able to immediately access any information you want is good or bad that I'm almost kind of wondering if it's both and it depends on who you are. It's um, almost like things aren't just good or bad. Right. I'm, like, I'm getting that sense. Of, I mean, I don't, <laughs> and so, I don't know if that's right. Maybe I'm the first person to, to think of this. Uh, so in paperback this week, this is, it's just really perfect timing. Yeah, this is very good. Um, is one it was one of my favorite books last year and it's called smarter than you think how technology is changing our minds for the better by clive thompson um, it's not about neurology and what the internet is doing to our brains it's about um, what the internet is doing for the way that we communicate with each other and the way that we work together and so thompson looks at all sorts of examples of like problems that got solved businesses that got started creative things that were made because people were able to connect with each other online from across the world um, who would never have gotten to meet each other in a non-internet situation um, or because of tools that exist online that allow us to collect data and model things and solve problems. Uh, and I thought it was really fantastic. Um, I know the internet has you know, changed my life in material ways, uh, including how I work and the people that I work with. And like if imagine if you could produce a small radio like show right. on a specialized topic when it's, it's, that people could um, <laughs> consume at any time, in whichever that. way they and, wanted to. And then after they consumed it, they could talk to you. Yes. On Twitter immediately. Yeah, instead and of, they could send emails to right, um, of, maybe, I don't know, podcast at bookriot.com. Yeah, instead I just, of like I'm just dropping something in the Pony Express and hoping <laughs> for a letter to come back someday. So Smarter Than You Think really resonated with me because it wasn't just a philosophical argument about what do we do with this thing, but it was a look at how the internet now is like the digital equivalent of the turn of the century coffee shops in, you know, mm. in Europe where people who were working on different things and had different interests could bump up against each other um, when they previously had no way to do that. And what that mix of ideas and specialties and information allows us to do and basically to steal ideas and ways of thinking about things, you yeah. know, like I follow a bunch of people on Twitter who aren't related to books, but often the way that they approach thinking about some non book thing will give me an insight into how to think about a book thing. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, definitely. yeah, that's really important. And it's a cool thing that the internet does for us. So, I mean, obviously I am super biased in my experience with the internet and in uh, what I think, but I'm, I love Smarter Than You Think. I highly, highly recommend that. And I'm going to read the rest of Curious um, to see what Ian Leslie has to say about uh, getting immediate answers. You know, I to saw a thing that someone was saying, um, I read an article this week basically saying if you were born before 1985, you experienced both the pre and post internet world. Mm -hmm. um, and I was, as you were talking about, especially about asking questions, when I was at KU, I had this job working at KU Info which was, it's weird to even imagine now, but it's, it was a phone line where students and really the whole community, we had researchers from ABC and NBC call us actually. Oh, really? And you, you could ask any question and we would try to answer <laughs> mm -hmm. it. Because it's hard to remember this, but like you couldn't, you couldn't just know within 10 seconds what the name of the Bill Bryson book about walking the Appalachian Trail was. Right. Like you'd have to, I don't even know what you, I guess you would maybe go to the library so like if and I, ask. If I called KU Info back in yeah. the day and asked what that Bill Bryson book was, how would you get the answer? 
Um, we had we had a big like six volume edition of books in print ah. where we could look up by the last name. Interesting. We also had a ten thousand card Rolodex. Whoa! When every anytime someone asked a question that wasn't in the Rolodex, we put it in the Rolodex by subject category. Um, and things like, but even even dumb stuff like, uh, are squirrels rabbits? That's one of my favorite <laughs> all time questions. Well, I mean. Like, how do you mean, right? Like, yes and no. Like, they're both mammals. Like, But they're not the same. But a squirrel is not a kind of rabbit. Right. Well, they bo- are they both rodents? Like, you can see where mm-hmm. people, someone's coming from there. Like, so are, are unicorns real? So, like, you remember getting the internet. Yes. And I, that, re- I remember. I remember getting, we got, we had a database on the computer. We started moving the actual cards onto um, FileMaker Pro on this little app, the Mac Classic we had. But then we got the internet, and then we got Google. Right. And actually, KU Info doesn't really exist, and it's it ex- exists but only to answer university questions uh, that are harder. That's to That's actually like, info about KU. Yeah, not just about the whole world, but like you know, so, you know, it's hard to remember. People had cell phones, and they're driving along. They're trying to get to Topeka. It's like, wait, how do I get to Gage Park Zoo? And we'd tell, we'd ask them where they were, and we'd get out a map. Oh wow! And we'd say, okay, go up here and turn. Like, it's just so it's changed so much. And I don't know that it makes it smarter or whatever. I think, I think you can get past the stuff. You can get with the internet. You get to get past the things you just don't know in terms of information to ask more interesting. Mm-hmm questions about well, like, ideas and you, processes and reasons. Yeah, the five minutes that you would have spent on the phone with someone from KU Info getting the directions to yeah. Gage Park Zoo, you can now get those get, directions. Go down a Wikipedia, well, right, excuse yeah. the pun, rabbit hole about the relationship of mammals and vertebrates and squ- kingdom orders. <laughs> not and a squirrel viral. hole? Not a squirrel hole because um, squirrels aren't rabbits. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting about 1985. Like, I, yeah. I have wondered because I was, I'm, I was born in 1982 and I remember getting the internet. Like I came home from church camp one summer and my parents had gotten the internet. (laughs) (laughs) So awesome. It was a surprise. We were so excited. Like I wasn't the first in my group of friends to get it, but I wasn't the last. We, you know, I got a Hotmail account Mm -hmm. and then I had to argue with my parents. I got my my first email account the day I went to college. Like you had to go (laughs) into the computer center and like sit there and Yeah, I remember getting a Hotmail account and my mom saying not to go in any chat rooms, but I didn't have any idea how to find a chat room. Chat rooms were the windowless vans of the early internet. <laughs> like it just, so you just, you, you got to watch out. And then arguing about whether I could have AOL instant messenger because mm. I understood what that was and my parents yes. didn't. There's a loophole in their, their fear of the internet. Right. right. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> this is what like, are, oh, we're talking about what, new books. Yeah. And both of the new books this week are about the internet and curiosity and technology well, I, and culture and to the technology culture thing is the thing that you all, that you and I are both really both interested, interested in. in. And um, I guess that's our show that, maybe this week. That is. So supersized. It is a supersized show. So thank you to Squarespace for sponsoring. If you want to try out Squarespace, you go to squarespace.com and use the offer code poetry. It lets them know you came from us and you get a 10% discount on your free trial. Or you get a free trial and a 10% discount. Yeah, you can't, 10% or free, discount or free trial. That's like uh, heads I win, tails you lose. That's how math uh, works. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, also, thank you to Bombay Blues, which you can check out um, in a link to the show notes or wherever books are sold. And Random House Audiobooks, you go to tryaudiobooks.com to get a free audiobook. Use their recommendation tool to find something that's the right length and the right genre. 
for you and let us know if you do and what you listen to because we're both always yes. looking for audiobooks. Jeff will need something when he gets to the bottom of the Bill Bryson pool. Yeah, in about 2021, I'm going to need a, <laughs> a set of uh, audiobook recommendations. <laughs> um, I had a lot of people email in audiobook recommendations. Maybe maybe uh, next couple weeks we'll uh, talk about some of those. As always, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Reading Ape. She is at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. You can give us feedback about this show through email, podcast at bookwire.com. We read those and I respond to them. Uh, let's see. You can, oh, show notes. If you want to find the links to the stories we talked about or the books we talked about, you can go to bookwire.com slash podcast and you'll see all the shows um, there. And this is episode 68. You want to leave an iTunes review? That would be super helpful. That's how most people listen to podcasts through iTunes or their podcast app on their phone, the Apple Podcast app. And the more reviews and ratings we get, the higher we result, we, we, we show up an algorithm, top 10 lists and blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's a good way to help other people find the show that you are listening to and enjoying right now. Uh, I guess that's it. Is that it? I think that's it. That's right. All right. Well, have I'm a good Labor off. Day. You, I will. I'm going to have an excellent um, trip, and I'm looking forward to hearing you guys talk next week. Yeah, Paul and I will try not to burn the place down. All right, or just or burn it down in like a way where we get the insurance money. Like make it look <laughs> make it look real. I trust Paul to have a plan for that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Talk <laughs> Bye, to you guys. Later. Bye.